once in a while you get shown the light in the strangest of places if you look at it right. During December, Elvis always did Christmas songs. He picked me up, put me on his knee, and sang Blue Christmas. The magic of the season isn't in a trend-savvy ornament or a perfectly trimmed tree. It's elusive and hard to define, but it is magic, and it is real. To me, faith is about this rock in your life that gets you through this life and hopefully carries you to the next. Happy Holidays. I'm Margot Potter. Merry Christmas. I'm James Pettit. Happy Hanukkah. I am Batsheva Frankel. Hey, this is Mark Gibson. Happy Holidays. And you're entering a world gone good. And you're entering a world gone good. And you have entered a world gone good. And you're entering a world gone good. Well, ho, 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 my name's Steve, or go ahead and call me Santa Steve, because this right here is our second annual Holiday Gone Good. Prepare to jangle your jingle, whatever that means, as we gather around the menorah, the Christmas tree, or the glow, the glow of our smartphones to share the holiday spirit. You know what else you can share? This podcast! You were wondering how I was going to get to it, weren't you? I always love to plug this part, and I did it. See, I never disappoint. Please share, subscribe, rate, and review us. It really is the best present you can give us, and it's absolutely free to do. So gift us to your friends and help us spread the good now and all year long. Today, we celebrate the good of the holiday season with four merry and bright friends of mine. Grab your eggnog and your latkes, because here comes Christmas and Hanukkah and presents and chocolate coins and Elvis and the Grateful Dead. Yep, you heard me right. That is exactly where we're going to start and begin the festivities. It's all going to begin right here with a Hanukkah tale from a deadhead. Batsheva Frankel is the host of the podcast Overthrowing Education. It's an edgy entertaining and informative show that hopes to transform education while at the same time making you laugh. She also has a game show on it that's pretty fun, so I think you should check it out. But before you do that, stay with us right now because this is Batsheva's Holiday Good. Well, the Jews have united yet again. (laughs) We've made it 40 years through the desert. The oil in the lamp is still fired up. The oil started early this year. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Was it day after Thanksgiving it started? Yep. Holy cow. (laughs) Well, I'm invited all these wonderful guests of mine, including you, to tell a wonderful holiday story. So I'm just going to open the floor to you and say, take it away and tell us your holiday good. This takes place, the beginning in early December of 1993. And it was the first days of Hanukkah. And actually, that was important to me. But what was equally, and maybe if I'm being honest, more important to me 
was that it was also a run of Grateful Dead shows. Now, for people who are unfamiliar with the Grateful Dead, bands started in the 60s, but in the 90s, they were like the most lucrative touring band at that time. And when they do a show, when they do a run of shows, in any case, they've never, ever, ever done the same show twice. So people would often see them many nights in a row. So we had tickets for four nights in a row. So I went with my friends, and the first night that I went was, as I mentioned, also Hanukkah. And I was really excited. I brought my little Hanukkah menorah, and I set it up in the parking lot before we went in. And all the friends that I came with are not Jewish. So I explained to them what Hanukkah was, and I told them the story of Hanukkah. And then they listened to me say my blessings, and I lit my Hanukkah menorah, and they were very interested. And we played a little dreidel. I explained why dreidel is a Hanukkah game. And I gave them the chocolate candies we call Hanukkah gelt. And they were very excited about that. And it was really lovely. And then we went in and we enjoyed the show. But the second night, I went with the same group of friends. And I took out my Hanukkah menorah. And they couldn't have cared less. And they were like, hey, we're just going to go stand over here and wait for you. You know, hurry up. <laughs> we want to go in the show. And I was really sad. So I was like, you know, saying my little blessings and lighting my little Hanukkah menorah and feeling like even though I was in the middle of Los Angeles, I felt like I was the only Jew in the world. <laughs> and I was really sad. So I went into the show. And even though it was a great first set, I was a little melancholy, to be honest. And so when it came time for the set break, because I always play two really long sets with a 45-minute or so set break in between. So the set break in between, I went out and I was walking in the hallways of the Forum in Los Angeles, a big auditorium, and it was packed, 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 packed with people. And I'm just walking around, feeling kind of blue, and all of a sudden, somebody thrusts this piece of paper in my hand. And I look at the piece of paper, and it is a skeleton, which is you know, an icon of Grateful Dead. So it's like a happy thing. It's not like scary skeleton. And it's wearing a kippah, a yarmulke, and it's lighting a Hanukkah menorah. And I was kind of blown away. And then I saw the quote on it. And it said a quote from one of my favorite songs. Once in a while, you get shown the light in the strangest of places if you look at it right. And I was blown away because that was really the essence of Hanukkah, bringing light in, time of miracles. It, it was just, I was floored. And I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm not the only Jew in the world. And I looked up to see who was this stranger who handed this to me. And all I saw was this huge Cheshire cat smile kind of fading off into the crowd. And I was like, wow, that was such an amazing experience. So flash forward about a month or so, maybe two months. And a friend of mine who is not Orthodox, but she wanted me to come to her friend Stewie's for Shabbat dinner. And I was never really interested. But then she finally said the magic word. She said, you know, Stewie is a deadhead too. Deadhead are followers of the Grateful Dead. And I thought, that's crazy. An Orthodox Jewish deadhead? How could that even be? I got to see this. So I went there for Shabbat dinner, and I had the most amazing time. The food was incredible. The singing was so amazing. And there was all of these beautiful words of Torah, the sage wisdom. And there was this rabbi that came in. He had a long beard, the whole nine yards. 
And I thought, what's he going to say? So he started talking and he was giving over this beautiful teachings. And then he said, and in the words of Bill Graham, now, Bill Graham is like one of the most famous concert promoters ever. And from the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And I thought, wow, this rabbi is quoting Bill Graham. That's super cool. So I went up to him afterwards after the dinner and I said, you know, I just have to tell you this crazy story about what happened to me at Hanukkah when I was at these dead shows. And I told him the story and he said, well, actually, that's how I met Stewie. Do you know that story? It was years before that Stewie, the guy whose house I was at for Shabbat, his apartment, he was the one who made up that flyer. He's the one who thought of it and he's the one who created it. And I was really blown away at the at the amazing uh, serendipity of being at that dinner from that guy. So I was so into that Shabbat dinner. I came back the next week without my friend and I started coming very regularly. And even though I wasn't keeping the Sabbath entirely at that point, I was very much a regular there. I was coming pretty much every week and just really getting into everything. And so about a year later, close to that original Hanukkah show, I was sitting down with some friends at the Shabbat table, my friends Johnny and Julie. And my friend Johnny said, you know, you've been with us for so long. You've been hanging out so much. I forgot. How did you even get here? Like, what happened? So basically, I told him the story that I just told you. And he looked at me with his big Cheshire cat smile and said, I handed you that flyer. Okay. I have so many questions. <laughs> First of all, why couldn't you have gone to eight nights of Grateful Dead concerts in a row? That would have been Hanukkah perfection. It would have been, but they only played four nights in a Okay, row. I'll let that go. I'm going to let that go. <laughs> That's their fault, not mine. If they had played eight nights, I would have been there every night. <laughs> How did Johnny pick out Jews in the crowd, or was he just randomly giving them out? I have no idea. Interesting. We are still really good friends. And a PS to this story, uh, a couple weeks ago, the most recent iteration of The Grateful Dead, which is called Dead & Co. with John Mayer, um, they were playing two night, three nights, but I went to one and a half nights at uh, the Hollywood Bowl. And the second night, I was sitting with Johnny and some other friends, and they played the same song of Scarlet. It's called Scarlet Begonias, and it has that that quote in it. And it was great. I was like, "That is it was amazing to wow be there." Yeah. Did he remember you from the crowd, or was he such like a like a mass uh, note giver that he didn't even y'all look alike? That's what I'm saying. <laughs> No, he just, he, I think he was just the person that was handing him out that night. He knew it. And maybe at that moment he did recognize me. I don't know. That's really magic. That's really magic. Thank you, Batsheva. Remember to check out Overthrowing Education wherever you podcast best. 
My next holiday victim, I mean guest, is my longtime friend and former co-worker, the magical and hilarious Mr. James Pettit. He's here to share a story of the king. No, 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 hold on, not that king. I know it's Christmas, I know what king you were thinking of, but um, we're actually talking about the king of rock and roll. Well, we are reunited yet again. Here we are, my friend. Oh, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. It's good to hear you. It's good to hear you. Now, I'm inviting friends of mine on my second annual Holidays Gone Good show because they apparently have good holiday tales to tell. So I am opening up the red carpet and the jingle bells and all that good stuff. The floor is yours because you have a holiday tale. Take it away. It's all you. Aw, thanks, Steve. So, uh, you know I was born in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. That's home of the neon baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary showgirls. I love it there. People love going there. And I have a beautiful mother. Like, she's just gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous. She could have been a showgirl, but no. My mom had other ambitions, and that biggest ambition was landing husbands. Yes, with an S, husbands. Uh, I was five years old, and that was her third husband when she uh, got married for that third time. And uh, he was the general manager of the Las Vegas Hilton, and he had a really big job. Uh, He's responsible for bringing in those big acts to the showroom. And so, like, he booked Nancy Sinatra and then finally booked the Elvis Presley. So that was huge for my mom and for me as a five-year-old because she would listen to Elvis all the time. And uh, well, you can imagine she was over the moon and she really was. Uh, She couldn't wait to meet him because, you know, my new daddy was uh, the general manager of the hotel. So every Saturday night, the new dad would reserve special seats for high rollers. So That's like the dinner show back then in Vegas. And uh, during uh, December, Elvis always did Christmas songs. And one Christmas Eve after the show, Elvis and Priscilla invited us up to their penthouse suite in the Hilton, which was the very top of the Hilton Hotel. It was very, very beautiful. I think it still looks the same. Well, all kinds of like crazy stuff went on in that smoke-filled suite. Um, I, for one, I tested my first glass of champagne. Yes, I was five, but it was uh, Vegas. So what happens in Vegas, I guess, stays in Vegas until now. (laughs) And then, so basically Elvis took a liking to my mom and like trusted her. And it was a very nice relationship that we started to like see them every Saturday night because we'd sit in those seats in the showroom. And so at up in that uh, suite for the little Christmas Eve party, he picked me up, put me on his knee and sang Blue Christmas. So now to this day, whenever I hear Blue Christmas on the radio or on a, on a podcast like this one, um, I, I don't think of just Elvis. I relive how happy my mom was at that moment in her element. Because that's, that's basically her in a nutshell. In fact, on Saturday nights during the dinner show, Elvis would seek my mom out in the audience and give her the sweaty scarf because he did that every show. And he explained 
that he gave it to my mom because of her reaction first <laughs> and her respect for him and for her respect for Priscilla, which was really something awesome. And that she probably wouldn't do anything in front of her five-year-old son that was too crazy. That is my Elvis Christmas story, basically. But I love Blue Christmas. I, I know it's not a very happy song, but to me, it brings back happy memories of my mom, who's still in Vegas, not a showgirl yet, but uh, on her fifth marriage. That is so amazing. When you were five, did you put together who he was? Uh, I kind of did because of like the records, you know, the the big vinyl records on the record player because his picture was big. You know, those vinyl records are big. And my mom would allow me and my sister to like put the records on and put the needle on at five because, you know, you just had to be super careful and we were good at it. And that was like, we had a collection of Elvis. So, and that was before he was even booked to the hotel. So that's what was so special. So yes. Describe the outfit that you would wear to a Saturday night as a five-year-old. I want you to tell me you had on a velvet smoking jacket. Oh my God, I wish. My mother did like to dress me to the nines for these things. So um, I had usually white and baby blue was the main color that my mother put me in because I'm a blonde child and that those colors do like help the, the lighter eyes pop and the blonde hair, you know, shine so um she put me in like baby blue like a jumper ish but with shorts but the shorts you wouldn't see my legs you'd only see my knees because I had these white socks that went all the way up to my knees like just (laughs) below them and like little white shoes and um you know the little jumper and baby blue and a little white and baby blue like newsies hat that I got to wear I, and we have pictures because um, mom would, you know, the they come around in the showroom and they say, oh, picture for, at the time, probably like $5. But you they click your picture, go develop in the back, it comes out black and white by the end of the show. So my mom and I have a few of those where she just looks amazing. Her hair done up, you know, just oh, gorgeous. And then there's me in these cute little <laughs> outfits. <laughs> Thank you, James. You are one of my all-time favorite humans. You already know that. We got a music theme going on, right? So as you can hear, let's just keep it going, yes? Mark Gibson is a singer-songwriter with a brand new album out, Hymnals from the Plains. It's rhythm and blues and country and rock all mixed together in perfect harmony. And a lot of it is about a good little something we call faith. Don't you want to save me? Don't you want to save me? Maybe I am worthy Somebody else These crosses Crosses All over town Got no healing or saving that I have found. 
Build the hill in the valley Hell up above and I'm still searching For salvation In the face of the end of my life Don't you want to save me? Don't you want to save me? So here's a question for you. Where does a song start? Oh, man. It kind of depends. This album, Hymnals from the Plains, was written a lot a cappella, actually, initially, because I was doing a lot of touring and and. I was living in Cincinnati at the time and coming back to Tulsa a lot to play shows as well. And so I was in the car all the time and had to be productive. (laughs) And uh, so I did a ton of voice memos of me just coming up with melodies and lyrical ideas. And so this album was really freeing to, you know, base it off the voice as opposed to, you know, the same old strummy patterns that you do on the guitar and stuff like that. So this one was kind of unique in that way, but usually it's the music first. And something inspires me, something about the chord changes, the sonic properties of the keys or whatever is the bass, the kind of vibe of the the kind of embryotic, you know, song. And uh, then that inspires me to sing something on top of it, which is usually uh, like vocal jargon nonsense. <laughs> and then from that melody and those syllables and syntax, I start writing lyrics that kind of fit and and kind of complete the whole song. Well, this is a holiday show, and we're talking a lot about faith and hope and a lot of funny things, too, that we've Mm -hmm. grown up with and stuff. Do you still have faith? Uh, As far as, like, from a Christian standpoint? (laughs) Life in general, whatever standpoint you want to take, because I'm talking, I got got Jews on this show, I got Christians on this show, I got atheists on this, this is an episode for everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have faith in humanity, even though it tests me a lot of times. I, I try to have faith in myself, um, although I test myself a lot too. And I have faith in something beyond my body, beyond myself. Uh, I don't know what that is. You know, I, I grew up in the Mormon church till I was 14 and I left. Uh, when my mom left, uh, she gave me that choice and I took it. <laughs> and, you know, I've tried to just maintain some sort of level of spirituality, whatever that means. You know, what, you know, you could talk about the universe or, or energy or whatever, or, you know, a um, kind of an agnostic God or whatever. But I, I just want to believe in something beyond the body because when I don't, I feel like it's depressing. It's a little too dark for me. And I, I want to just have faith in something bigger. I, and I, and I selfishly hope there's something after this existence too. I don't know what that is. I don't, you know, get in deep with all the dogma and, I don't read any scriptures or anything. I just spiritually and just, again, selfishly, I just want to keep on going <laughs> somewhere else. I want my consciousness to, to carry on. I don't want to live this life and then just goes, it goes dark. So I, to me, faith is about, in a way, like having this, this rock in your life that gets you through this life and hopefully carries you to the next. Oh, oh now the left and the right will not save us we got to try we can make up finding the middle round soulness all these words get thrown 
You have a song called Hymn for America. Yep. Where did that concept and where did that first spark from? Well, as you know, <laughs> the United States has been really torn as of, you know, the last decade, but, you know, always. But, you know, our generation has been, it's been, has been experiencing it dramatically as of late. And um, I just couldn't, as a songwriter, not allow that to kind of seep into my writing and I just felt the division was so strong that I needed to make a statement. But instead of picking a team, a one or two, like having some cheesy kumbaya song, I wanted to kind of have something that, you know, had redemptive qualities and, and had faith in humanity, but was call, kind of calling out some stuff and, and calling out the left and the right for, uh, you know, getting almost so panned hard on the spectrum that there's a uh, division that is almost, you know, you can't bridge it. You can't, you know, if you get that far uh, from each other, it becomes really difficult to relate. And, and then you can't, you can't be a successful nation if half the nation feels left behind, like either way. Um, it, you need to have some sort of <laughs> common ground and so that the song inspired was inspired by that theme, and you know the, the opening lines are the left and the right aren't going to save us. We were kind of looking to these political sides as our kind of salvation, to use another song title. Um, and it's there's just not they're not really serving the people. Even when your team wins, it's like everyone's still pretty disappointed because they're the people in power aren't actually reflecting what the people want. And I just think it's time to change. It really is. Like we need systemic change on so many levels, whether it's healthcare, education, or prison system, everything. <laughs> and um, this kind of like soundbite attack stuff we do online and politicians do it to each other. And they do these little emotional triggers on these like three or four hot topics that divide the American people. It's just, it's nonsense. And it's not doing us any good. And we're really kind of falling behind and falling apart. And I wanted to write a song that addressed that stuff, but had hope and had belief and that, that we have the ability to change and treat each other with respect and kindness. And even though we are different, I think that makes us stronger if we embrace it. And uh, I just, yeah, I wanted something beautiful and inspiring, but also honest and real.
Thank you, Mark. Pick up his new album, Hymnals from the Plains, wherever you music best. My final guest is a returner of sparkly proportions, the one and only Margot Potter. Last time she was here, we spoke about the good of creativity. Go look up that episode. It's a, it's a good one. It's in our previous shows. It'll definitely spark your joy. <laughs> this time, she's reading us a tale of her own Christmas past and her own Christmas joy. Christmas is, and always has been, complicated for me. For many years, it was lonely. I was away from home and rarely had the money to fly back, so I spent a lot of Christmas Eves and Christmas Days alone, feeling isolated and, well, kind of lame. For that, and more pointedly, the joy of Christmas got lost one horribly sad year in my childhood, and it didn't come back until I'd had my daughter. It was as if that sad year melted away, watching the sparkle in her eyes on Christmas morning, and that's the magic, isn't it? But perhaps it's unfair to expect a child to make Christmas magical. That's a lot of pressure on a kid. And it wasn't until the other day, this is when I, when I wrote this, I'm reflecting on when I wrote this, that I started to think that maybe that's what I was doing. I was thinking I was making it magical for her, but maybe she was making it magical for me. Maybe I was, maybe I wasn't. Maybe the magic is something in which we all need to believe for it to be real, I can't say. But I can say that this particular Christmas in Tennessee, far away from our family and friends, was less than ideal. I was sad. I was damn sure not spending the Christmas season feeling sad, so I gave it my all. I sang stupid Christmas songs. I plopped on a dorky Santa hat. I decked the halls, hung the lights, reimagined a new and improved holiday decor. But getting my daughter and her father to participate was like pulling teeth. The two of them just sat staring at electronic screens all day, only stopping briefly and begrudgingly when I begged them to hold something for me or help me up and down a ladder. You'd think I was asking them to scrub toilets. And at one point, after hours of my gently prodding him to bring out the tree, Mr. Potter stomped down the stairs, tree box in tow, yelling that he hated Christmas. Hated Christmas. And that was it. I stopped asking nicely and started insisting the tree be hauled out and lit. This was followed by more bitching, which I ignored. I proceeded to hang a smattering of vintage Christmas balls and some candy canes while they retreated to their screens, and I wasn't really feeling the love for decorating it further alone. I mean, isn't the whole point of having a family doing this stuff together and liking it, or at the very least pretending to like it? Was I expecting too much from my family? When did we lose the magic of Christmas, and how could we get it back? Well, I did not sled gentle into that good night. I put the fun back into dysfunctional. Damn it. They were going to help me trim that fucking tree, and we were all going to enjoy it, even if it killed us. And for a moment there, I thought it just might. And that is our Tennessee Christmas story. (laughs) Tragicomical. (laughs) Now, that's from a book you wrote. It is. It's it's from a a book called Zen Master Slacker Mommy. (laughs) And when did you write that book? Uh, well, it's basically blog posts for, and then stories I wrote from about 2004 until last year or a year before when I published it. Um, and so it's just all these essays that I wrote on my first blog, which was called The Impatient Blogger. And that blog was just me every day writing just to be in the practice of writing. And I didn't really care if anybody read it or, you know, it was the beginning of blogging, really, the blogosphere. And it was just a way of being accountable because if I was doing it in public, I couldn't, you know, it was harder to take a day off or to let it slide. Um, So that's, that's what that's from. They're just all these stories that I shared, some of which got me in some trouble with family and friends because they were, you know, 
as I said earlier, your stories aren't just your stories. They're also other people are participants. And sometimes they don't like it when you tell their stories. Your family looking back at times like this, what's their take? What's their version, do you think? Oh, probably that mom needs to calm the fuck down. Um, <laughs> but also that they're glad that I do it because they they want it done. And in their heart, it, like there's the romance of Christmas, of making it Christmassy, of decking the halls and all that. But the truth is it's kind of a slog. Like put, we had this ridiculous tree that we bought. It was, you know, this happens to us a lot. We found this tree and we've been buying live trees and they die the before Christmas. Every year they just turn into like dried needle you know, fire hazards. So we finally said, let's just look and see if we could find a really cool fake tree. And we found this amazing tree. And at the time we lived in an Amish schoolhouse that had been a union hall. And it was, I was like a hundred and something years old and it had these 10 foot ceilings. So we got this giant, beautiful, realistic looking tree with all these little pine cones on it and big thick branches. But then when we went to decorate it, we realized what a pain in the ass it was to like put the lights on it and try to get the bulbs shoved in there. And so every year when my husband had to put the lights on, it would just be this like endless string of obscenities, you know, this damn tree and now it's Christmas. So yeah, I mean, you know, to be fair, that tree that he had to haul down the stairs was a real pain in the butt and I couldn't do it. So, you know, it was easy for me to be, you know, it's easy for me to be like, how dare he? say he hates Christmas. Yeah, that tree really made it miserable. So, <laughs> Well, there are those who are, of us who are directors and those who need to be directed. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> well, now we have a tree that's tiny. It's just a little pencil tree because the farm is, the barn is small and my daughter's, you know, lives in, in DC and she comes home for Christmas, but it's, I downsized all of that stuff. And so it's just one little tree and it's very simple and it's a color scheme with some of our, you know, cherish, cherished ornaments tucked in and amongst and it's it works and it's easy and everybody likes it and uh, then I can do it by myself and I don't have to nag them anymore thank you Margo find out everything you need to know about living a creative life and get her books too at margopotter.com I like to ask each of my guests a holiday question it's kind of digging back in your you know, childhood memory, what is the most memorable holiday gift you ever got or can remember from your childhood? And all my guests are going to answer that question after Batshev and I discuss the significance of chocolate coins at Hanukkah. What is it about chocolate coins and Hanukkah? (laughs) That's actually a really good question. Uh, because what it really was, was back in the day, you know, in the old countries of the many that Jews come from, there was a tradition of giving gold coins or coins, I should say, just coins to kids, um, for Hanukkah, like you'd give them a coin or something, whatever you had. And so I guess that just turned into chocolate coins, which is great because who doesn't love a chocolate coin? Okay, so we're going to jump over here for a second. Growing up, was there a toy or a something, a gift that you always wanted that you finally got? I think I was around 12 years old or so. It was Christmas, and I wanted a keyboard. And, you know, we didn't have a ton of money, so I didn't know if I'd get it. And even back then, like little Casio keyboards were like 100 bucks. And, um, but yeah, lo and behold, that Christmas morning, 
I see this obviously wrapped keyboard and uh, I was so elated. It was amazing. And that, that keyboard and the sounds and little drum grooves they had in it and just playing uh, is one of those keyboards that would play like famous songs for you and show you like on the screen what the fingers were doing. And so you could, you could learn it and all that stuff. So it was funny enough, like that was one of my first moments with playing an instrument. And and so that was a really great Christmas because it was like this opening of this musical wor- world to me. And um, I always remember that pretty fondly. I get up on Christmas morning and I got a pogo stick and I always wanted a pogo stick. So I was super excited about it, except the thing is that the pogo stick was broken. So I got a broken pogo stick and they, and they, they explained this to me. Like, why did they give this to me? They said Santa broke it. But Santa didn't break it. They were drunk or doing whatever the hell they were doing up late and somebody broke it and they thought it'd be funny to give it to me. And that is a sad, there's a sad, tragic comical. <laughs> I don't know what, like, why would you give me the broken? This is my, this is, these are conundrums of your life where you just go, what was that all about? <laughs> You're not going to believe this. Yes. And I was a child that liked cars. And for some reason, I was gravitating always toward Volkswagen Bugs and (laughs) Carmen Ghia, Volkswagen Carmen Ghias. And I just love cars. And in um, 1974, because remember, Elvis was still, you know, doing the show. Um, he bought his maid a Volkswagen orange convertible bug, you know, that cleaned that top, top floor of the Hilton and just like as a gift, a nice gift. And when I turned 16, I got back in touch and um, I asked if I could buy it and she sold it to me. <laughs> so, but I had to, it was crazy because I had to pay my grandmother to pay for it which wasn't very much at the time i mean it was it was like three thousand dollars which was kind of a lot a lot for a 16 year old but i had a job at chuck e cheese and i was like a birthday host and i would make like good tips and i told my grandma i would pay her back a hundred dollars every month until we hit three thousand so i did that and i got that car and i had that car all the way through until i met you into the 90s? I, I kept it forever. I still have the license plate. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, a, a little toy car in my, in my heart turned into a car I wanted in reality and, lo- and just loved all that time. And finally, as always, we wrap up our joyous time together with my favorite question. Tell me something good. Or even, in this case... Tell me something holiday good. What makes the holidays good for me is we're all so busy and distracted. And even when we're together, a lot of times we're on phones and stuff. There's something about the holidays that just forces people <laughs> to like connect in the same room. I feel like it's just there's a different energy during the holidays. And people, I think they, do, they, they acknowledge that it's a special moment and they're more open to like really having quality time with each other. So family and friends getting together, it just seems like there's a heightened sense of importance and we all connect more. And to me, that's like the best part of the the holidays is the people around you and connecting with them. I think, oh gosh, 
while we get so bogged down by what's wrong <laughs> in this world, um, there is so much beauty and there is so much that's right. And I'm seeing, I'll just take my particular field, which is education. And my whole goal is to help have great, phenomenal, equitable education that is filled with critical thinking skills and student-led learning and you know all of those things. And I'm seeing progress in it. And I'm starting to really connect with a lot of people who are trying to make this happen. So for me, I feel like that's something really, really good. And I would also say that um, this year, the vaccine's really good. <laughs> I know there were many who will debate me on that, but I'm really, as, as my husband has um, very serious heart issues. So to us, it was literally life-saving to get these vaccines. Well, I met the man of my dreams. His name is Jeff Parker. We live together in beautiful Sherman Oaks. And every day is just amazing to like wake up and see a smiling face and go to bed and see it too. And I'm just so happy in my little bubble in Sherman Oaks. And uh, thank you for having me on. And thank you for letting me share something good with you and your audience. All right. Well, I have something I could read really quickly if we still have time because it kind of sums this all up. All right. So it's easy to get caught up in the hype, to look around at the sea of perfectly perfect holiday homes filling up the internet, blog after blog, pin after pin of everything just so, color coordinated, trend savvy, magazine worthy, and artfully lit. It's overwhelming, really. But yesterday, as I began unwrapping our odd array of ornaments and thinking back to each Christmas past that they represent, I realized that having a perfectly perfect Christmas was not very interesting to me. I wouldn't want to toss out the past for a photo op. These kooky, funky, fugly ornaments, the ones made by tiny hands from old soup can lids, globs of white glue and clumped glitter, they are by far the most beautiful of all. I plan to fill my tree with these impossibly beautiful memories and savor every one because what's interesting to me is making the most magical Merry Christmas possible, imperfectly perfect and hope-filled in every way. The magic of the season isn't in a trend-savvy ornament or perfectly trimmed tree. It's elusive and hard to define, but it is magic and it is real. Thank you, Batsheva, James, Mark, and Margot for celebrating the season with me and with us. This is the time of year when no matter how dark the world can seem, somehow it just gets a little brighter, doesn't it? Maybe it's all the Hanukkah candles lighting it up, or the Christmas lights, or maybe it's the spiked eggnog we're all cracked out on. Whatever the reason, happy holiday to you, and um, hey, get out there and go make it bright. Make it brighter for yourself, and... Maybe someone else. Next time on World Gone Good. So much of the time when people are talking about disability from an outside perspective, they're talking about it in terms of pity and patronizing and, oh, isn't that just look at them? That's not at all what I'm interested in. Laura Brody sees the beauty in wheelchairs, walkers, canes, crutches. She transforms them into works of art. I'm not saying that figuratively. She literally makes them into art, functional, working art. 
She's the founder and creator and exhibitor and artist behind Opulent Mobility, and she's changing the way we look at the disabled, the afflicted, the elderly, all through her visionary reimaginations. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. Until then, be good.